Welcome to the Ron Huntley Leadership Podcast, helping leaders be a positive catalyst on the people they support, the organizations they serve, and the communities they live. This podcast will make you think, laugh, and grit your teeth with new determination to make your parish or business a place of transformation, passion, and purpose. If you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. is the condition of your heart? I know that is a big question and one our guest Pete Jones does not shy away from as he candidly shares his three-part journey. Worldly success which included a time at Vogue magazine, the search for meaning, and a life completely changed. I apologize in advance for the sound. I did my best to improve it. Please soldier through it. You'll be glad you did. I think this is one of those episodes you'll want to share with some people that you care about who can relate to Pete's story. If that person is you, welcome. Enjoy this episode. Lift off and the clock has started. I have the opportunity to meet great people from all over the world because of the work that I do. Today's guest is no different. His name is Peter Jones. He's the Director of Ministry for Europe, Middle East and North Africa from Alpha International. Welcome, Peter. Thank you, Ron. It's just great to be here. (laughs) It's wonderful. I'm excited to talk to you. I I love the role that you do, the impact that you have through the role that you do. But before we get into that, I love, you know, I know in my own life that God makes straight with crooked lines. Uh, We all have a story of coming to a place of of receiving the love that God has for us. And before we talk about the other stuff, I'd love to get into your story a little bit. Is that okay? Yeah, that's fine. Where would we start? Thank you, Ron. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Oxfordshire in England. Uh, great family. Um, two older brothers, younger sister, uh, and my parents. But it was a little bit like the Wild West in a way because we grew up on the a lot of farmland around us. We were driving pickup trucks and we had air guns and then shotguns. And, and it was a little bit, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was more like Texas in, than England, to be honest. <laughs> um, we, we, we had great fun, but it kind of got a bit more and more edgy as we, it, I don't know what it was. We just lived a bit of a wild lifestyle, me and my brothers. Mm. And um, we got into sort of drinking and I got into um, recreational drugs at the age of sort of 14, 15. Mm. And that combined with sort of cars and petrol um, powered vehicles that is not a good combination. So there were kind of car accidents and stuff. It, it was a wild lifestyle. My poor parents, we put them through it. Mm. Um, and, and by the time I was about 15 or 16, I was really, really pretty rebellious, really. Um, and the relationship with my father, particularly, was breaking down. Mm. And um, I actually went off to boarding school for the last two years of my schooling by mutual agreement. We didn't really want to be around each other, to be quite honest. Mm. And um, at 17, I left school and I, I pretty much left England and I went to live in Paris. By 18, I was living in Paris and on my own. I had a couple of friends there. And I just thought, this is great. I've got freedom. You know, no one's bugging me. And it was fantastic. But what I found out pretty quickly, looking back on it, is that freedom without any kind of accountability is toxic. Mm-hmm. And because it's on the world's terms and the world is going to give you what it thinks. <laughs> yeah. There's that, there's that 
slightly scary line in the early in the Bible says, sin is crouching at your door. And um, that's pretty much what was going on. So I was ended up leading a pretty dissolute lifestyle there, Ron. And um, uh, involved with older people, Americans, and um, just an American community there. Uh, and it, it was pretty damaging to me. And um, I thought I was having a great time. <laughs> but actually, it was really, really damaging to my soul. And um, I compromised a lot of things that I knew were wrong because I th- I, I've always believed I wasn't a Christian at the time. I didn't become a Christian until I was 27. But I've always, I'm, I've always known that we've had a conscience. It's inbuilt in us. I don't think that's something you, you get later. I think it comes when you're a little kid. You know right from wrong. You know what's fair. You don't have to teach kids the words, it's not fair. They'll tell you what they mean. <laughs> right? So we have this kind of inbuilt thing right deep inside of us that tells us right from wrong. And I compromised that, compromised my conscience at quite a young age. And it did me a lot of damage. And one particular thing, I mean, I don't know, it's quite heavy early on in this discussion, but what happened is I got my girlfriend pregnant. She was older than me and she wanted to have um, a termination. I knew that was wrong, but I went along with it. And I actually, um, I held her hand while that was done and I paid for it. And I did pay for it, Ron, because it, it broke my heart completely. I was, you know, I was a very young man and it was absolutely heartbreaking. And, and that, at that point, I thought this is probably the last chance I had to have a good life. Mm-hmm. And that was... That was, that's a hard thing to deal with, you know. I didn't know that there was any way out of this. Uh, is, is who can pay the, the ransom for life? It's too high. It's somewhere in the, in the Psalms, I think it is. <laughs> you know, right. it's, it's, you can't pay for this. There are things you, you, you do that you cannot, you cannot pay for, so you have to learn somehow to live with them. Um, and that's what I, that's, that took me into the next stage of my life, which was learning to live with that, that stuff. That makes sense. Yeah, it's, um, you know, there's parts of your story that really resonate with me as well. Um, and the age, the ages as well. I moved out when I was 18. And, yeah. Um, yeah, I was rebellious as a young boy. And, and, and so a lot of those same themes, uh, although I grew up in a, a Christian home and, and was going to church every week and, and all that stuff, but it, it, it wasn't what um, I allowed to define me. I didn't necessarily enjoy it. I knew it was a part of what I was supposed to do, but it's not what I longed for. It wasn't what my heart desired. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it was the worldly things that, yeah. you know, and the drinking and, and things like that became a regular part. So, yeah, so I can, I can relate to what you're saying and, and the pain that that caused. You said something interesting. That was the last chance I, felt like it was the last chance I had to have a good life. So here you are so young, mm. recognizing that the impact of the choices you've made led you to a place you didn't see coming mm. to consequences that you deeply regretted. And, and uh, what I'm hearing, and, and please correct me, it's almost like you, you felt like you, you had written yourself. You, you were written off from that, the joy and the peace that life could offer you because you've kind of crossed a line that yeah. you shouldn't have. Like, isn't, 
imagine how many young people probably feel that way, to be honest with you, Peter. Like, you don't get it. You don't know what I've done. Mm -hmm. You don't know how rotten I've been and how selfish I've been. And so I probably have to live with this my whole life. And I think what, for me, the way I lived with it actually was that I became hard. Mm. <laughs> because you can't live with that, with a soft heart, with, with that amount of pain in it. So you have to deal with this somehow. So you either mask the pain, you do more drugs, more alcohol, more, more of the stuff that kind of got you there in the first place. So there was a lot of that involved in my 20s. I was drinking heavily, I was partying, you know, because once you recover from this sort of initial shock of this stuff, what do you do with the pain? You, you, you have to anesthetize it somehow. So you become hard-hearted and, and you allow things into your heart that just shouldn't be there. <laughs> and I think this is one of the great uh, issues of life, really, is that we allow things into our hearts, into where our affections um, are seated, if you like. It just mm. shouldn't be there. And... And you, and you cut yourself off further from God in a way, because what you're doing is you're hardening your heart towards, towards the people that love you often and, the, and God who, who's loving you. <laughs> we just don't know and you can't see it. Um, so, I, so I lived for about uh, six or seven or eight years like that. I, I was doing great, Ron. I was, listen, I was in London. I went to London. I, I had an incredible career in publishing. I, I was about 25. I was working for Vogue magazine. I was kind of peaked a bit early, really, because it was like the top magazine job. You know, I was, I was production controller for that, um, handling big budgets, very glamorous. I sort of had everything the world could offer. I mean, on paper and, and according to you know, what people think would be a great lifestyle, would be great. I had, you know, I was, there were models there. There was parties. There was, it was the 80s. There was lots of money. You know, it was everything. I had an apartment in London. Everything the world had to offer. And inside, I was like a man starving in a desert. Because I just, my soul was just start starving for, for real life, you know, for something. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was. And then what it led me to was a, a period when I, I just, by the time I was 26, 27, I was getting very disillusioned with the world. I thought the world is not, it just doesn't have you know what i thought it doesn't have the truth and i went after the truth quite interesting i just thought what is true what is true i don't i need something true that i can trust i don't even trust myself mm -hmm. you know <laughs> I, I what can i trust i've had broken relationships broken uh, dreams everything was kind of broken but on the world's you know it was functioning well in the world's terms i was doing well everyone was saying you're doing great you know it was like this but i wasn't i wasn't mm. i was i was I was anesthetizing the pain, you know, one way or another. And I think um, what happened is I went on search. I, I, I went on a pretty relentless and rigorous search for truth. And I'm a reader. I did a publishing degree. That's how I ended up in publishing. Uh -huh. And um, I love reading books. So I just started reading. And I read the history of Western philosophy. I read Bertrand Russell, who's supposedly our greatest thinker at the time, philosophy. I started looking at different religions. Everywhere I turned, I thought, these guys haven't got it. Oh. They just haven't got it. I looked at East. I learned to meditate. I was Eastern stuff. Mm -hmm. I could empty my mind, Ron. And yeah, guess what? That was like, so what? There's nothing in there. It's like <laughs> we just come back, you know. It was like 
It didn't help. None of it helped. None of it was. I just thought this is not the truth. This isn't the truth. And, and the best answers were, were really don't bother looking because you're not going to find it. And I thought is that's the best that the Western mind can come up with. It's just not good enough for me. And I just kept looking. But I, and you know what? I had one friend at work who was a Catholic. And she spotted this. She kind of sought this something up with this guy. And she kind of made me a project. And what happened is she got her home group praying for me. I found out later. I was furious. I mean, like, <laughs> how do you, you have no defense against that. How dare you? <laughs> Argue with me. I'm good. Right. But praying for me, that's so unfair. <laughs> so, right, once I started doing that, I was, I was kind of, that was it. The die was set. And, huh. and what happened is she started giving me books. And one of them was um, God of Surprises by Gerard Hughes, he a Catholic priest. And it was just like, it was written for me. God just hit the nail on the head. You know, she was giving me stuff that was just absolutely perfect. I was reading books on economics. I read Small is Beautiful by E.F. Schumacher. I found out later he's a Christian. And he's got references to a book called Ecclesiastes. I thought, where's that? I read Ecclesiastes in the Bible. And I went, finally, someone knows what they're talking about. Solomon, grumpy old Solomon, let's be fair, the end of his life, disillusioned, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Man, I've been working in the fashion business, right? So so it was like he'd written it yesterday for me. I was so disillusioned with life, and it was he met me exactly where I was. It was extraordinary. So the book of Ecclesiastes was the first thing I read in the Bible. It, made, it was the first time I thought, this guy has got his finger on the path. This guy knows the truth. And it started me on this journey was Jesus because they were praying for me. and giving me, So I'm just reading my way in. And then every, suddenly every film I see, every book I read, it's got Jesus in it. Mm-hmm. I even read The Stand by Stephen King, which is supposed to be some kind of not a horror novel, but it's just this battle of good and evil. And it's all about Christians. The Christians are the good guys. And it, honestly, if, it, if there's a, a kind of angle scale where you move closer to God, that moved me up one thing. It was a, it was a Stephen King novel, from, which is not recommended reading, right? But God <laughs> worked through it. So everything I was doing, he was working through everything I was going to come into contact with, he was working through to bring me closer to him. Finally, I went on uh, with my friends, my Catholic friends now, to a retreat center in the, here in Oxfordshire. And they were worshiping in the chapel every morning at 6 a.m., which is very early for me. But I put my hand on the door handle one morning, and I said, God, I can't find out anything more about you by reading, but I know you're good, and I want you in my life. And I opened that, that chapel door, and I walked in. And there were six young people there. They were playing the guitar, and they were singing. And, Ron, I promise you, I heard at least 12 voices in that room. The heavens just opened and the Holy Spirit came down and flooded my heart. I ended up on my knees weeping on that chapel floor. And I think, you know, there's supposed to be a sinner's prayer and all these fancy. I think God just heard that when that'll do. That's, that'll work. <laughs> I want you in my life. And he came in, Ron, and he changed everything at that moment. My life completely changed. I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And, and, and I, felt, I suddenly knew what I was for. And about two days later, I walked around Primrose Hill in London. And I couldn't speak of the things that I'd done. But actually, I was already speaking in tongues by then. I, I don't know if this is 
Yeah. Okay, a podcast, but that's what happened. <laughs> yeah. One of the gifts of the spirit. And I went home that night and I'd heard the guys doing it and I went, what does that sound like? And I started imitating. I thought, oh, I'm doing it. So I had a full language. And I walked around Primrose Hill in London and in tongues, I confessed everything to Jesus and the weight of that sin that had been weighing me down, literally, literally killing me wrong because I was, I was in trouble with this, came off my shoulders from, from, from what I'd done back in Paris and it never came back. And he took it away from me and he took the weight of the world off me that morning. So I, I, I've been tra- I was transformed in about two or three days. By the I mean, it really, and then I'm going to work on the bus and I'm, cry- I'm reading the Bible and I come to the bit where he's on the cross with the two criminals. And I start crying. I go, what the heck is wrong with me? You know, it's like, what is, every time I come across this passage, I'm, I'm, I'm crying and I realize what, there were two criminals crucified with Jesus. And what I realized is I was relating to one of them. Life had pinned me down and was punishing me, and rightly so. I was getting what I deserved, and that's exactly what the criminal said in the cross. One of them is giving Jesus a hard time. He said, if you're the son of God, save yourself and save us as well. The other says, don't you fear God. This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says the most extraordinary thing. He looks across, not down from heaven, but he looks across from his own cross to this, to this convicted, guilty criminal and says, today you will be with me in paradise. So the world had thrown this person away, had, had judged him, had condemned him, and passed sentence on him. And Jesus turns to him on his own cross and says, you, because the way you have acknowledged me, will be with me in paradise. So the first person in paradise with Jesus was a guilty, convicted criminal. <laughs> so, and, and I'm, I'm thinking, that's me. That's, that's what I felt like. I, done, I, couldn't, I can't pay for what I've done wrong. But Jesus, that's what the cross is. It's just him saying, oh, guys, I, I'm going to pick this up. I will pay for this because you can't. So for anyone out there who feels like they can't pay for the things they've done wrong, you're in good company. And that's why he came, to pay for the things we can't pay for and to bring us back into relationship with the God that we walked away from usually at one point. Mm. Wow, Peter, the... Um... I just want to sit in silence for a while and let, let it just set with us. Like me, I, I'm hearing this for the first time in real time. Our listeners, I, yeah, I, I remember the night that everything changed for me, became more real. Like again, growing up in the church didn't mean I had an experience of God. Uh, I had a head knowledge, which, um, and my head wasn't didn't have a propensity for absorbing information like yours did. So, <laughs> so whatever's a lot less than that. That's the head knowledge that I was bringing to it. More, you know, just more what I was doing as a part of a family, and those were good things. Don't get me wrong, with good intent. But I was 16 years old when I was on a retreat that my mom made me go to, and, mm. and I was up in the 
we called it the upper room, a full day of hearing talks and small groups and singing and all these things that I never would have done ever before in my life walking into that retreat, but just seemed like a bunch of other normal teenage guys doing it too. So you just didn't become, it was, it was less weird as the weekend went on, let's just put it that way. Uh, and by that evening, um, we were uh, praying and and the cross was on the wall and we're praying and we're reading some letters of prayer that people that we didn't even know were praying for us. And that that's just strange that somebody would take the time to, to pray good things for me because mm-hmm. I wasn't, didn't feel good. My, I wasn't proud of my behavior. And, and I read a, a letter from my mom and another one from my brother. And, and I just realized that here he is hanging on the cross, died for me. And I didn't ask him to. And I never would have asked him to die for me because I didn't deserve it. I wasn't worthy of that kind of sacrifice and that kind of unconditional love. And he did it anyway. He didn't ask me. He went ahead and did it for me because he knew I never would have asked. And I remember just crying for a long period of time. And it just washed me clean like because I was so selfish. I treated my mom poorly and made her life probably far more worry than I know she spent a lot of time on her knees loving and praying for me. And, and I was just lost. You know, I was just lost. And uh, boy, I, I left that weekend a different person. I still had a lot of mistakes to make and a lot of bad decisions ahead of me. But that seed was planted so deep by that point that I eventually had to answer it with more integrity. Um, yeah, so beautiful. So thankful. So thankful. And so how did you find yourself? Like, what was the trajectory of your life after that point? Like, what a wonderful transformation And to your point. Like, you had a lot of, you clearly had a lot of gifts and a lot of skills and you were able to apply your, your gifts and skills to a trade and, you know, profession. And how did you find yourself where you're at now? Well, the first thing I did was I gave up my profession. <laughs> um, and I, I, I just felt this strong sense of, I had to stop what I was doing, you know, everything. I, I, I'm the kind of person, I can't, what you see is what you get. So what, what's happening on the outside is pretty much what's happening on the inside. So I changed my, um, I, I moved out of London. I came back to Oxfordshire and I remember standing in a field in the back going, right, God, it's now August. Summer's nearly over. What am I going to do the rest of my life? Wow. And I'd been to a Christian festival by then and picked up a leaflet on youth work. And I made a call to Oxford Youth Works, which is a, a, a small organization here training people to do detached youth work on the streets. Mm. And at the age of 27, that's what I did. I retrained for two years. And we worked with the, the most, not, not young people really in the church, but people outside the church on yeah. the street. And we'd work in the schools and stuff. So I came back to my hometown and I was working in the local school. I got a job, job at the local church working. And my remit was to bring the young people into the church off the streets. And that's what I spent the next few years doing. And it was 
it was tough, but it was quite successful. Um, because I was that disillusioned 14, 15 year old in my hometown. So when the kids say, you know what's like living here? I said, yes, I do. <laughs> I was right there. You know, I was running around on the streets at that age in that town. I knew all the crooks and nannies and the nooks and crannies as they call them. So, <laughs> you know, it was, I went back, Ron, what it was for me, it was, a, it was like going back to, to rescue myself. <laughs> it was like redeeming that 15 year old that I, that I was. It was, it was like a, it was a bit of sort of penance in a way. It was just, I've got to go back and get this guy. If that makes sense, you know, I was yeah. kind of living that out and I put my heart into it and, and lots of, lots of young people started coming after several months of very much testing me and, and, um, they started coming to faith. It was incredible. And we saw and some of them are my friends now, which is really wonderful. This is a long time. Ago. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm still here, you know, I'm still not far away. So, um, but then I got, I, to be honest, I got burnt out doing that. Sure. It was so tough. And I was young in my faith and I didn't really have the, the, the kind of grounding, to be honest, that I needed. Mm. Um, but, but so what I did then, I went traveling for a while in British Columbia for six months, went fishing. And I came back and I started my business. And um, then I got married uh, to to my wife who I'd met on alpha actually, because when I came in the first, the first connection I had, I'm going to backtrack a little bit. The first connection I had with the, with the church, I mean, apart from the Catholic church, which I was kind of hanging around months with my new Catholic friends. And then they eventually, they said, Pete, we think you might be an Anglican. <laughs> so they took me to an Anglican church, which was the first plant of Holy Trinity Brompton where they were doing alpha right way back in the early days. So this was 1990. Wow. And I did alpha and sitting across the the table the first night was a beautiful Nigerian woman. And four years later, we ended up married. There's another story there. But, uh, and so Titi Lola. What's, what's your wife's name? Titi Lola. Titi. Lola. Oh, cool. And, uh, you know, so I married into an African family, which has been an incredible experience. And uh, we, we're, we're still here, 20, 22, 23 years later, two kids, um, growing up now at university. So, so we met on Alpha, so Alpha's good. Um, but we ended up living here in Oxford and running a business, and, and I started doing Alpha in the local prison. Mm. Uh, we did it in our home for a while, and friends came to faith, and the church was growing gently because of that. And, um, and then when we moved to a big Anglican church in town, in St. Aldate's, they had a prison ministry, and I joined that team, and then we just saw things explode because we went into the prisons and I just saw Ron over the, over the next seven years, I ran that course there and we saw hundreds of men come to faith um, and they were guys off the corridors. They weren't even in the chapel on Sunday. Mm-hmm. I would hang around outside the chapel, but the doors were still locked. The guys were queuing up and I'd be outside talking to the guys and people would come past and go, who are you? I said, I'm Pete. Who are you? And they said, uh, so I'm going to tell you one story. This guy comes Please. down the corridor. Guy comes down the corridor and he's, he's a, quite short, but he's like a barrel-chested guy, and he's about late forties. He's got four or five young guys with him. You can tell this guy's the he's the capo, he's the boss. Yeah. So he's walking down the corridor, prisoner, and he comes up to me. He goes, "Who are you?" And I hold my hand out. I always shake hands with him. 
I said, I'm Pete, who are you? He said, I'm Pele, the drug dealer. Wow. Something, something in me didn't, didn't sit very well with me, what he said. So I said to him, no, you're not. He said, yes, I am. That's what I've done since I was 12 years old. And I looked him in the eye. And by this time, there's a, everyone's watching this meeting. And I said to him, that is not God's plan for your life. If you want to find out what it is, you come in the chapel, unless you're scared. <laughs> no, you did not. You I mean, did I'm, not. The Holy Spirit just took over. So, uh, so, so he pulled his hand away and says, come on, boys, we're going in the chapel. <laughs> I'm not scared of nothing. Well, he, he couldn't go, could he? So, <laughs> so he comes in, he comes in, sits down, arms, arms crossed, you know, like this. And I can't remember what the Alpha talk because we get life talks, but I, we, they got both barrels of the gospel that day. <laughs> and coming in, they just come in, these guys are fresh off the, off the corridors yeah. of the prison, right? And this is his gang. They're all in there because he, because they didn't turn him in. Right. right? This is serious stuff. So, um, and I, what, what I, how I explained the, the, the gospel to the run is what I said earlier you cannot pay for the things you've done wrong. Now, I'm in a room with 30 or 40 prisoners, some of whom have been category A prison and are now, now mm -hmm. in category, right? They're working their way through the system. And if you've been a drug dealer since you were 12, you know you've probably been responsible for some people who aren't here anymore, mm -hmm. right? And I looked at this guy, and as I said that, a tear rolled down his face, and I thought, there it is, God's connecting. And he... And I said, the, the reason why Jesus came and went on that cross is because you can't pay. And that's him saying, I will pay for the things you've done wrong. It's simple. <laughs> you know, mm. it's not complicated. And we have a God that loves us that much. Mm. And that guy gave his life to the Lord that day. He was filled with the Spirit. He would shake and cry in those meetings. Whenever we, whenever we spoke about God, he would just shake and cry. He would go out to the Restroom, come back. It was in the end. He just gave up and he just sat there and cried. And he invited more people to Alpha than anybody I've ever met. And he would say, "Pete, you never guess who I'm bringing next week." <laughs> the heavyweights, guys, the debt collectors, the bone crush. I mean, he brought everybody in there. All the drug dealers were doing Alpha to the point where the officers were starting to ask, "Are oh, all the drug dealings ha happening?" <laughs> and I was like, well, "Take the guys aside." I said, "Guys, listen, you got to you got to back me up here." I need to know that none of this stuff is happening because the chapel is where everybody meets in the prison, right? That's notorious. So, so, so I said to him, you take responsibility for this. Nothing happens in here. This is, otherwise we all get shut down and he's um, good and he starts looking after it. So, <laughs> but Ron, we saw hundreds of people come to faith and God did something really, really special in that time. And there was a favor on the word of God, on the gospel in that time. The spirit would come and just hover. I did over 350 sessions in that chapel. We never had any trouble. There was only one time when one guy went for another guy. I was, I was leading worship. I was singing, I can't remember, Amazing Grace. Yeah. And this guy walks across. With his, yeah, he's going to pop this other guy because they're winding each other up. And he walks across the middle of the room in a big circle and stops dead and reverses backward and sits down in his seat. And I'm hard to distract, so I'm still playing Amazing Grace at this point. Thinking, what the heck is going on here? And afterwards, I spoke to him. He went and sat on his own afterwards. And he, and he, and he said, 
I said, what's up with you? He said, Pete, a week ago, uh, you know, he said about a month ago, I would have taken that guy's head off. He said, but when I walked across the room, this big hand went on my chest and a voice said to me, not here. <laughs> right? God just sat him down. And what, we, we had situations where we had, where we had cage fighters in, in that group and we would pray for them and they would just slump down in their seats and close their eyes and they'd be out cold. And one of them said to me, I thought I was a big guy in here, but I met the big guy today. God would just knock him out. He said, Pete, you pray for me. And I woke up in the coffee break. What just happened? The God was just in control of these meetings and doing stuff in these guys' lives. It was amazing. And we were just along for the ride, Ron. I was just, I thought, God is doing, so the way I do ministry, Ron, God is doing something special. See what God is doing and resource it. That's, that's our job, okay? Just find it, try and see what the Father is doing. I think this is what Jesus did. I only do what I see the Father doing. So we, there was something special on that crew. So I just started training people as we build up the team. We've got to make this sustainable because God is doing something. I don't want to let that down. I don't want to be the one that we link here. So we, we put all our resources into that. And then what happened is that the, the guys said, hey, when we're coming out, we come to your church. I thought, oh, great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. My regulars are going to love that. <laughs> And I'd been there before with the youth work because the youth work yeah. was successful, but the church struggled with them. Yes. Right? Because they're still yeah. behaving kind of bad yeah. around. Yeah. yeah. So I went back to the, the, the rector um, and I said, uh, we may have a problem. He said, what? I said, success. <laughs> yeah, right. Because success causes new problems every it's time. It's like a trap in the road, Ron. You can be doing great and you can fall straight in it. It looks all, all looking good. Great. We're you know, bringing the people in. We're, the, People are getting, you know, coming to faith, and but it can be a tiger trap because you, 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 you can be. What's the phrase? Shakespeare hoist by your own petard. <laughs> Shakespeare said, "That can be a problem." Getting breaches caught in the catapult, basically. Right. Um, so, so you know, you can you can come undone from, from your own success. So, so what what I said was, we need to decide whether we're going to love these guys and accept them in the church because they didn't really care if we were Anglican, Catholic, Baptist. No. They like my Jesus because he came to see them. Yes, right? Amen. You know, he's the one who bothered to come and see them. I don't mean they're a different Jesus. No, I know what you mean. I totally get it. Yeah. <laughs> we, we came. As, we are the guys who took the risk. And this is another thing about ministry wrongs. Ron, is that we're so often, we so kind of sit in church, we want people to come to the church. But that model, we know, doesn't really work that well because for somebody who's been in prison to walk into a church, it takes more courage than somebody who's been in a church to walk into a prison, which True. does take some courage. Yeah. Right? yeah. It's a bigger risk for them because they're risking that rejection. Mm. Yeah. Society has already rejected them and spat them out and, and thrown them in society's bin, which is basically a prison. Yeah. Got rid of them. Uh, and so the big question is, am I going to belong here? So this is about belonging. This is about identity. This is about who, we, who, who we're accepted by and stuff like that. Now, I've already gone into the prison, formed groups. We've got solid alpha small groups running in there. That's church to them. This is like, it's all up and running, right? It's like, when we get out, we're going to carry on doing this, aren't we, Pete? Yeah, sure we are, you know. But I need to go back. So the church, brilliant. They said, we're going to hire somebody. They hired a full-time member of staff to work with their 
And then about two years later, I went back and I said, this is great, guys, but we've got people coming to faith. They're in our congregation. They're coming on Sunday. They're sleeping in the car. Mm. I can't deal. So we have to start buying houses for these people to live in. And they said, well, how do you buy a house here in Oxford? It's for expenses. I said, look, you're already buying it. Congregations are already buying houses. They're inheriting wealth and they're investing in property. Keep doing that. We'll manage. So we built up a team and now we're on it's about 10 years later we have 12 houses three full-time members of staff working on them and i think it's it's actually for a small medium-sized american church large european church about 1200 people it's a mm-hmm. world ministry it's a world okay i want to pause for a second this is this is just so cool but and the reason i want to pause is because here's a man who as a young boy makes all kinds of mistakes not a christian um, has comes to faith at 27 years of age. And for us in our tradition as Catholics, like your parents drag you to church to get baptized before you can walk. And you grow up with this identity of uh, I'm a Catholic, even though you probably don't go to church or maybe you do, maybe you don't. But boy, you know, getting back to that scripture of Jesus on the cross and the two criminals, um, you could relate to that criminal. I'm paying for, you know, Jesus is paying the price for what I deserve because of my guilt. And I I just see, you know, because if the church is going to be renewed, the Catholic church is going to be renewed. We're going to have to be okay with people coming to faith at different stages of life Mm -hmm. and unleash them and resource them and encourage them and pray for them and support them. And because Here's you saved by God and his grace come alive in your faith. And oh my gosh, like that's the power of the gospel comes most alive in transformed lives and people who know what it means to be forgiven. Yeah. And, and boy, we have to get really excited about that. We have to get behind that. We have to look for it. We have to resource it. We have to, because with all your capacity as a young man and your skills, you know, clearly you're a person of capacity. You could take on things, learn them, and then make something happen. That's, you know, in our Catholic tradition, you know, in hockey in Nova Scotia and Canada, if you're not playing ice hockey by the time you're eight years old, you've missed the train. Like you've missed the, you'll never catch up. You know, and, and so, you know, it's like, no, this is a 27 year old who's just buying skates for the first time, invite him out for hockey. And because he's destined to win the Stanley cup, like, <laughs> like, it's like, oh my gosh. Like so often in our tradition, we think to ourselves, we need to catechize people forever before they'll be useful. And it's not true. It's, it's, it's not my experience that can happen at odd time, but I don't think that's the power of God to change and impact and grow and make a difference isn't bound by boatloads of information over long periods of formation and time. No, I think, I mean, if you think about when the disciples um, kind of broke loose in the book of Acts, Broke loose in the book of Acts. Pharisees who were unbelievably well trained. Yeah. Um, who would memorize the, the Torah by the time they're 12 or 13. I mean, you know, they were starting at the age of five or six and they were going to long, long-term training and they, they were, these guys knew 
in there. They had a huge amount of head knowledge. They've discussed it all day long. And then when Peter and Paul come on the scene, they, they noted that, sorry, Peter and John, they noted that they were simple fishermen, unschooled, but they'd been with Jesus. <laughs> so the question is, what's happening? You see, I, I, always, I always think if people are very educated, we have a lot of very well-educated people here in Oxford, it's hard to convince somebody of anything. I've never known anybody be argued into the kingdom argued into faith I, I, you know well i won that argument and that guy's obviously going to come to faith this is not it doesn't happen but what you got to do is win the heart and once you win somebody's heart because god speaks to your heart <laughs> you know the spirit speaks to the to the heart and and that's where your conscience is i believe and that's you know that's where i was damaged from i was damaged in my heart my thinking was fine i was running a bit you know i mean that was that was nothing wrong with it. It was actually being used to create blind spots and, and denied things. So, in fact, your thinking can be a disadvantage sometimes. I, you know, if you're, you can be a very, very intelligent person and still be an addict because it doesn't help being smart. <laughs> but what the, my question is, what's the condition of your heart? Because that's where the seat of your affections is, and that's where your consciences it's the it's the closest part of us to god if you like is it, it the secular world will call it our subconscious and, and i think what god did that day was transform my heart and out of the heart the mouth speaks and out of the heart come the wicked things or the good things this is what jesus said our heart is a, is our kind of seat it's where it's 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 where we it's who we really are so that's what got transformed in a moment not my mind. My mind still needs to be renewed, and that can take years. Yes, yes. But your heart can be transformed overnight, and and I think that, and you're, and that's done by the spirit. So the spirit comes and just you're born again. So you you, you know you that's what being born again is. It's like having this experience we have. Now, having said that, there's people who don't have that experience, and they're wonderful people of faith, and they have a Absolutely. great story. We would have people come into the prison, um, you know. Of, 50-year-old married woman on the prison team who'd been a Christian all her life, and she basically pay her. Pete, I don't have a story to tell. I said, yes, you do. She said, what do you mean? You know, you don't, you're not like some sort of gangster grandmother. It's not, that's not the issue. <laughs> gangster the grandmother. They want to hear normal, good life that I've been married for yes. 30 years and I have three kids and, my, and I'm stable and stuff. They're desperate to hear that stability that a life with God gives people, it's of such value. It's of such value to me, Ron. Those are the people I want around me. I don't need crazy, flaky evangelists around me all the time, like, like me. And dare I say, no. Me. <laughs> you know, we need people. We need these people who have walked a, a, a long walk of obedience in the same direction. That is of such value because they're really, they're the people that I, I lean on because they're stable. My wife is like that. No. Do you know you the know? question I like to ask them, Pete, because I, I try to help people get to the heart of their story because we do long for a story mm -hmm. and, and a great question to ask those people. And, and I run into all kinds of them. Like a lot of the times I'm talking to people with that situation, they've grown up in homes that were very faithful and, and they themselves may have led that very faithful life. And so it's like, I don't have that gangster grandmother conversion story. <laughs> Um, but the, a question I'd love to ask them, and, I, and, and 
our listeners, you can take this and use it. If they don't have that story of conversion like you did, another great question to ask is, tell me the point in your life where you felt closest to Jesus. Because everybody has that. If you've been walking with Jesus steady your whole life, I guarantee you, you have a moment in your life that you felt the closest and then unpack that story. That is where their story lies within this steadiness, within this progressive growth of faith and support from families and church. Like it's a beautiful, uh, it's almost like being in the womb of the yeah. church. There's this beautiful protection. Um, but even in that, I guarantee you, everybody who lives, walks a life of faith will have a moment in their life, probably several, but one that they favor where they felt the closest to God. And when they unpack that, they come alive and they see, oh, I get it. Yeah, I agree. I, mm. I think that, you know, I, the other thing I ask, ask people to share is, you know, someone who's had a so-called normal life, because we get, you know, it's, uh, yeah, think, yeah. Uh, prison ministry, you're hearing all these amazing stories all the time. True. I just say, what are you struggling with? That's, and it's usually like a relationship with a re relative or something. And mm. share that with us. And then what is God speaking? What is God saying about that? And so this is, it's a real normal thing. But it's like everybody lives in this tension of the daily struggles of life our relationship with God. And it's a bit like the road to Emmaus. It doesn't realize, we, we don't realize well, he's walking alongside us all the time anyway. <laughs> you know, we're just not, not aware of him all the time, but he's always there. And, and I think that there's great value in, in just sharing the kind of normal struggles of life because everybody has those as well. Say everybody, that two times, yeah. Everyone. You know, you, you've got a problem with a relative, Everybody else does too, <laughs> somewhere along the line, you know, yeah. especially if you've got guys. So the prison ministry kind of grew and grew. And um, it was just the most extraordinary time. And I think I, just, I saw God doing stuff in people's lives I'd never imagined. It, it was just quite extraordinary. Some of those guys I work with now, they have keys to the prisons they were in. They're actually holding keys to the prison they were in. And the, and the guys send the officers, send them into rooms that they can't get in. Because the guy, the young guy is 14, 15 and flying off the handle. And they walk in there and they say, I was you. And, and we've got some amazing ministries going on with, that, with the guys who have come through the system and are out the other side of walking with God. And, and But we need the, you know, I always say that God's secret weapon in prison is grandmothers, actually. Because everybody loves their grandmother. So it's, like your mom, it's like your mom without the nagging. <laughs> so, but these guys love their grandmas. A lot of the grandmas bought them up. And their mums were really young or not, you know, whatever. And so, so we have teams with like these. Um, you know what this means, Peter? You know what all this means? I'm going to have you back on the show because we're going to have to have a part two to this. I've, Thoroughly enjoyed our time together today. Absolutely enthralled by your stories, by your story and how God's worked in your life and, and how you've returned that back by trying to be a blessing and being a blessing to others very clearly. Peter, thank you so much for your time on the show today. And I can't wait to have you on again. Thank you, Ron. It's just been great. Thanks so much.
The hunt for truth is a journey worth taking. You'll not be the first person or the last to realize there is more to life than this. The church exists to help us discover and live a life of purpose and meaning. Like Pete, you will know the truth when you experience it. If you consider yourself to be bright and honest and are yet to take the Alpha course, go to alpha.org and find a course that is being offered by you and take it. If you're a church leader and you don't have a place for the Pete Joneses of your area to explore the meaning of life, what are you waiting for? You too can reach out to alpha.org and I know the team will be happy to come alongside of you and help you to get started. Please take the time to rate this podcast five stars on iTunes or leave a comment on Podbean or just share with a friend. Thanks for listening. I want to encourage you as you lead this week, be faithful to God and generous to others. See you next time. And remember, if you're still breathing, you are powered for impact. Thank you.